Blog Talk Radio. Hey, folks. Today you got State of the U, podcast episode 10. I'll be joined today by Cam Underwood and Josh Kaufman, and we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to talk about some issues that go a little bit beyond the University of Miami. Um, we're going to start out with some questions for Cam on his most recent article and some developments in recruiting. Um, and as the show develops, we're going to talk about Mark Emmert. We're going to talk about some things with Frank Case and um, a lot of other things. So it should be a fun show. Hey, guys, how are you doing today? What's going on, man? Yeah, I'm good, man. Ready to get it on. Good to have yeah. you guys on. Uh, uh, thanks for hopping on. Uh, Cam, before we get into the larger issues, I want to ask you about the article you wrote with uh, some recruiting updates. Uh, is it true that uh, almost all of South Florida's best football players are going to Alabama next year? Uh, slight hyperbole, but uh, yeah, yesterday at the Alabama spring game, um, good news for the Crimson Tide, bad news for the, the Hurricane. Um, three of our top prospects, um, Calvin Ridley and Sean Burgess Becker, the best friends and teammates from uh, Monarch High School, wide receiver and a safety, and Micah Fitzpatrick from New Jersey, a five-star cornerback. Those three players, uh, along with another linebacker that we're not recruiting, all committed to Alabama at their spring game. Uh, you had in a, earlier in the week Marcus Lewis, another player who um, I had written about as being an emerging um, target, one of the prime targets, also the cornerback position along with uh, Fitzpatrick, he moved and transferred to Bradenton, Florida, to IMG Academy, and on the same day that he did that, he committed to the University of Florida. So that's four top targets, two cornerbacks, one safety, and one wide receiver, uh, two four-stars and two five-stars that committed elsewhere. Um, And on top of that, if they're saying, because uh, people don't want to listen, Torrance Gibson said that 85% chance that he leaves the state of Florida for college, nothing new. Uh, he came on Twitter earlier saying, oh, I have a big recruiting announcement. Um, but those of us who follow recruiting have heard that over the last month from him and from other people closely connected to him. Basically, he's looking to leave the state of Florida. Um, it looks like, which means he's not coming to Miami, being in the state of Florida. Um, and I wrote in the article, he's a wide receiver, not a quarterback. So please govern your analysis of that uh, move in that guy. Now, could he go to Auburn, where he was visiting yesterday, uh, for their spring game? Yes. And would he play quarterback there? Yes. But in certain systems, he's a quarterback. Overall, he's a wide receiver, um, and that's pretty well known. Um, ESPN, the national recruiting guys, they did a video about him uh, and breaking down his skill set and where he might fit in. And um, I think it was Luganville, the head recruiting director for ESPN, uh, he brought up a great point. He said, look, Gibson plays on an elite seven-on-seven all-star team and does not play quarterback. Like, I mean, I talked to one of the coaches from that team, and he said that Gibson had thrown maybe four passes in the last five tournaments, total passes, not touchdowns, total passes. So if you are supposed to be this great quarterback prospect but can't even play quarterback on a seven-on-seven team, what are we really talking about? Um, yeah, so getting back to the point of the article, um, lost out on a few guys. Looks like we're going to lose out on Torrance Gibson also, who we've been recruiting since he was in eighth grade. Um, and it just kind of goes back to, well, you know, what do we do now, basically? Um, and I had three things. 
um, for the short term and the long term. The short term is we need commitments from two out of these three guys, Jordan Cronkite, Jaquan Johnson, Tim Irvin. They're all best friends. They're all four stars. We need to get two of those three now or soon to get momentum. Brandon Wimbush now becomes the number one target at quarterback in my eyes because, A, Gibson's not going to come here. B, he's not a quarterback. Um, apparently, Al Golden told him over the summer, if or last year at the, uh, the camp that he came, that Wimbush came down to, he said, look, if you commit, we're not going to uh, recruit any more quarterbacks. Get him to commit, move on, and then get another defender um, like a Khalil McKenzie, another impact guy. Long term, we need to address this issue, um, the disconnect between South Florida players and the University of Miami, the elite guys, it seems like. We need to win games, and I think that will cure a lot of ills. And we need to continue to evaluate our own prospects and not necessarily go off internet rankings because that's how um, we came across a Sean Taylor, came across an Ed Reed, players of that ilk. We didn't look at the stars because they were rated lower, but we did our own evaluations. We trusted our own eyes and coaching staff and a university. And I think doing those things will get us back slowly to where we want to be. Cam, uh, thank you for that's a very thorough analysis. And, and for folks I, yeah. who come across this podcast, uh, definitely check out the article. Um, I, and for me, I, I've learned, you know, since I started doing this, uh, to not panic. There's just too there's just too long to go before signing day. I mean, kids are gonna flip. Um, so it'll be interesting. I, I know from reading some of your previous stuff, Cam, that if they could get Jaquan Johnson to come to Miami, uh, that might take care of a lot of other prospects too, because he's so revered by, by you know, some of the other uh, top high school football players in South Florida. So I, I don't think it's time to panic yet, but I am sick and tired of hearing everybody going to Alabama. It's getting old yeah, already. Can I, Jay, can I cut in here yeah, for go, a second? Yeah, just go ahead, a, Josh. Just a quick, just a quick observation. And let's take the fact that we're all Hurricane fans, and, and we love the U, out of the equation. If you were a four- or five-star guy right now looking to make it to the NFL, and you were offered a scholarship from Nick Saban and one from Al Golden, which one are you more likely to take? Well, I, I think I the results. The results. Well, I, I, I say the results kind of bear out going to Alabama, and I I hear you on that. But even still, without getting all those four and five star guys, we still get guys in the league, and the guys that we put in the league still make plays. And I'm going to go back to Sam Shields, who was horribly misused here, not really coached up to do great things in college. Just signed a forty-five million dollar contract in the league. You know, so no, I, I get it. I get it. But all I'm saying, all I'm saying is, it's it's fewer and far in between. Like you looked at Alabama, and there's all all kinds of guys all over. You know, Alabama. If you think about it, kind of flopped places where where Miami was back uh, when you know they won the championships in the in 2000s. Uh, it, you could say University of Southern California too had that run. Now Alabama. Yeah, they had that run. Yeah, and and you wonder if like how often those runs are going to happen again, and like you said, Cam, like you can't build it up with, you know, scouting correctly and then getting these like steals, three star and maybe low four star guys that really are five stars in disguise, when it comes down to it. But you know, I, I think the instability with Golden with the Penn State fiasco, I think there's a lot of stuff playing on why these kids aren't coming, and that's just my take on it. Okay, and that. And that's fair, but, I mean, just like you guys were talking about, uh, you know, it was Miami and then it was Southern Cal and now it's Alabama 
uh, and before us it was somebody else, and before it was somebody else it was somebody different, you know, and I'm going to throw in a quick plug because if you don't know, I'm from Detroit, so I watched the Pistons Bad Boys 30 for 30 on Thursday night, and there was a line of succession in the Eastern Conference. It was that you couldn't get past, or the Pistons couldn't get past Boston, and then we got past them, and Michael and the George, and the Bulls couldn't get past us, and then they got past us. So it was one team succeeding the other, and we're kind of seeing the same thing as who's the dominant team in college football. I'm not saying that necessarily we're going to get back to that level of greatness from when I was an undergrad, 2000 to 04, where we didn't lose one game uh, or one in my first three years, or we, yeah, we lost my second game in my freshman year of, high, of college, and then not again until my senior year. We might not get better, but we can get better still. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I, I, I just like, I, I, I think there's a, in, in part of Miami fans, they like, we, they think like, wait, well, just can't understand why all these homegrown kids aren't coming here. Well, it's, you know, for a lot of these guys, it's, you know, we'll get the legacy guys, the guys that want to be here, not just legacy, but just guys that grew up as Kane fans and that's all they've loved. But for a lot of these guys, it's a business decision, right? I'm, like most of the top ones, they're thinking, what's my best path to making millions in the NFL? And they look at, you know, recent history for Miami hasn't been that great. It's been, it's been a while since we've put a lot of players, volume of players in the NFL. You pick up uh, Sam Shields. Alabama's going to throw how many first-rounders or second-rounders and third-rounders? I mean, if I'm if – I'm, I, I love the U, but if I'm coming out and I've got a chance to play at Alabama right now, right now, not, not historically, because you can, you can, you know, this parody over history is all these programs, but, you know, where are you going to go? You're going to go to schools that are putting guys in the NFL. Right, and there's, there's no absolutes in this, and I do hear you uh, with that. But if you look at somebody like Alvin Kamara, a high four-star recruit, he never really saw the field, and he left from Alabama. So while you might go there, the quick path to the lead, like a Hashan, uh, ha-ha, Clinton Dix, who was there for three years and gone, that path is probably uh, easier to go down if you go to Alabama right now. But that definitely doesn't happen for everybody if you look at um, the guys who stay there for four years and then the guys who leave out because, you know, they – thought that they could compete for a job, and eventually they figure out, you know what, they're not ready for prime time, so let me go somewhere else and find some playing time. Yeah, no, I, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Uh, I, I still contend that I'd rather, I like the kind of the guy that's going to go somewhere think, knowing that he has to compete for a job rather than the one that says, hey, look, I'm going to get easy playing time here because everybody else sucks, so I'll go here. You know, I mean, there's, 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 there's a level of, of mentality in, in what's going on there. Are, are people... You know, the, the four-star guy that can't get playing time in Alabama because he's really maybe not a high four-star guy, he comes to Miami. Is he still – what is he then? Or will he go somewhere yeah, else? Yeah, but, I mean, I, I think that there's maybe a little bit of revisionist history that goes on with all of recruiting, no matter where anybody goes, Definitely. because we kind of – we're not kind of, but we also take into account their college performance to their high school ranking. Um, and sometimes that can skew things. In my, yeah, in my I agree. totally. I, I I think you're incredibly right there. I, I think, uh, you know, you can find these, like, diamonds in the rough, which is one of the reasons I've been uh, – I mean, I know where I'm kind of segueing into basketball a little bit here, but one of the things I like about Lauren Aga, he seems to find these guys. And, you know, I'm hoping Golden can find them too. And and, and that's, that's a great point. I don't think it's fair 
completely, though, to compare basketball to football because one player can have such a great impact right. in basketball. In football, you really Agreed. need, you know, a, a full class of guys. So, um, But I'm glad that you brought up basketball because I, 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 I think we can do an entire show on, on recruiting football. And I know Cam has done one with Peter before, and it was great. Um, but today we're going to move on to some other things. And the next thing I want to talk about is basketball-related. Um, I'm going to start with you on this one, Josh, and then I'm going to get Cam's thoughts on it. Uh, is, first of all, is there any truth to the rumor that uh, Frank Cape has now left Tulsa and is taking a job at the, at the Rocco Club of, Club of Women's School for <laughs> Typing? That's uh, yeah. <laughs> that that a really reference there. And, and then I, I, I just want your thoughts on, on Frank Cape. I mean, I, I liked Frank Cape when he was at UM. It was before all the Nevin Shapiro stuff came out. Um, I, I was one of you know, the people that was in his corner saying to be patient, he's a good recruiter, he needs another X is an O guy. But, you know, the story with Frank Hayes keeps, keeps going downhill. Uh, what are your thoughts, Josh? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I think Frank Hayes was a very good used car salesman. I think he was able to, to hide kind of what he kind of what he was, which is, you know, it's fine. He's ambitious. He wants to uh, he's always looking for his own security, which is, you know, pretty smart actually in this day and age with how hard it is to get jobs for for some people. But, um, you know, could you? I, I think we could have all predicted this in a way, right? You know, you knew, you knew going to Missouri with a lower roster. Predicting it. Yeah, we yeah. were kind of predicting that everything was going to fall apart when he took that job. I mean, and it's not that he's a, a bad guy or, you know, uh, he's just really not good at game management. Uh, he couldn't teach a lot of kids skills over four or five, six, you know, over years and years. And uh, he, he got a, an upgraded job at Missouri, you know, technically a better program than Miami in terms of basketball, at least at the time. Who knows, you know, what's going to happen in the future. But Missouri's got a huge following, huge fan base. They packed the arena. And he fizzled there, too, you know. Uh, and and he knew he was going to get fired this year. It wasn't going to work out. And he just jumped shift to take a less challenging job in a place where he probably couldn't stay for a long time. And, and Jay, like we've talked about, in, in a lesser conference, you know, just recruit really well, which he is very good at. He, he gets great recruits. And he'll be able to compete. And, you know, I, I think uh, it reminds me of, like, maybe like a Perry Clark in reverse, right? Perry Clark yeah, was, I, at, was at Tulane and, and kind of did really well and then kind of took the Miami job and just, you know, was like, yeah. So he yeah. does Perry Clark in reverse. Well, well, Perry, it was similar to Perry Clark in that Perry Clark's first year at UM, much like Frank Cape's first year at uh, Missouri, he inherited a really uh, loaded team that was able to make Leonard the Hamilton. NBA. Yeah. yeah, Leonard Hamilton left the cupboards full for, for Perry Clark. I, I don't know if folks remember, some of the hardcore Miami fans may, but he had a team with John Salmon, Darius Wright, Elton Tyler, James Jones, who's still on the Miami Heat. And um, their last starter was a kid named Barnes. I can't remember his first name, but they they had five double figure Marcus. scorers. Marcus, Marcus Barnes. Barnes, that's right. So yeah, they were yeah. they were kind of yeah. I mean, what is I mean, what's going to happen when the next coach comes into Missouri and they they get back on track? I mean, I, I don't know. I I was a big Frank Hayes fan. I had the opportunity to interview him. He's a very nice guy. Uh, you know, really cares about the kids in the program from everything I've read about him. And uh, he just, just didn't I, I get it done in Miami. Week, I lost a little respect from this week, and not because he left 
Missouri to go to Tulsa. We we all know why he did that, and and you got to watch out for yourself in that business because it is a business. But the fact that he sent a text message with his resignation and, and didn't meet with the kids, the kids he recruited and the kids that were depending on him to at least face to face tell them that he was leaving is not something that I would ever expect. Yeah, no, to I, I told, I told, I think this is his last thing. Honestly, I I, I think you can't handle the personnel situation, the, the personal situations like he did, like you just mentioned, with Miami, with Missouri, and there's like a pattern building. And I think this is his last shot. If he could be competitive, he might be able to stay there for a long time. You know, if if, if not, they'll, they'll dump him and he'll be coaching high school basketball or community college basketball somewhere. I, I don't think you're going to see, see unless he unless he turns that program into a, a powerhouse somehow, you're not going to see him get – a top job for for a long time. Uh, the the idea that he Durant is still like lingering to him is you know. Sorry, Jay. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I I I agree. I I don't think he's. It doesn't appear as though he's got uh, what it takes to be a major major Division One coach. Maybe a mid major. Uh, but I wanted to bring Cam in here for a second. And, Cam, I want your overall thoughts on, on the Frank Cape situation, but I also wanted to ask, do you think there is any school in the country over the past three years that's upgraded at head coach more than Miami going from Haight to Laranaga? Um, that's two good questions. Um, and I, I touched on the last one on Twitter because, obviously, I was um, going in on Frank Haight at the time that he left or was rumored to be leaving, and this is when he was on the plane going from Missouri to Tulsa after he had a team meeting where he said to his players, I don't know, I'm just kind of talking to the guys uh, from Tulsa. Uh, and then he flew over there and, yeah, text messaged his resignation, which is such a, a chicken shit move. Yeah, I pulled the Bobby Knight uh, vocabulary right there. Um, but Tulsa, where he went, I know that, you know, we're looking at it as a, a mid-major and, like, a smaller team because they did have some very poor seasons. But they've had 15, nine, uh, 15 seasons of 19 or more wins since 1993. So that's, what, 20 years, 93, 94? Uh, so 15 times over 19 wins. They had Tubby Smith, Bill Self, Buzz Peterson, uh, Danny Manning as their coaches. So they, that, that program is – while it's a step down from Missouri, and I agree with everything that you and Josh said about, you know, Missouri being a step up from Miami at the time uh, and everything, it's not a huge step down. You're not going, you know, to the you know, Sisters of the Poor middle school JV team uh, by going to Tulsa. So he still has a job to do there. Um, and yeah, but isn't, sure the Cam, sorry, isn't the perception, though, I mean, at least for me, he's kind of like running away, right? He's fleeing for his <laughs> – for his coaching career, and that's 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 what I get. And I'm wondering if the, you know, the kids he's going to now are going to look at him and say, you know, okay, we know we're good basketball players. We're D1. This is a solid program. I didn't mean to trash Tulsa. I know it's not a bad program, but it's not in the it's not in a major conference. It's not it's not you know it's not more towards the center of the basketball world. But you know, and even a, a lower program in the ACC, you get these big games and against Duke and North Carolina. And all these guys, and even the SEC, you've got Florida, you've got some other teams that are are pretty good. <clears throat> I just I just wonder what's the perception? You know, when usually you know coaches try to move up or at least laterally. He right. threw a lateral. You know, he threw a backwards lateral to save himself. That's that's just the impression I get. Maybe you know I don't know what's going on behind the scenes with with Frank Case at Missouri and all, but 
the perception I have is at least he's running away from from his job. Right, and I and I agree with you. But where I was going with all that was saying while he might be going backwards and thinking, oh, I just had this easy road to twenty more years of coaching and you know whatever. I gave you those records and those coaches to say, look, Tulsa is not going to accept 17 and 17 or 16 and 13 as okay. You need to be winning 19 or 20 games or more every year. So there's even more, I think, at stake because if he's not really good, even stepping down, he's still going to get fired in two years, yeah. three years maybe. Yeah, I think he's good. Uh, I mean, Jay and I have actually talked about this, and Cam, you can tell us what you think, but – I think he's actually a good enough recruiter that he will he will get some talent there, and the talent will be probably marginally better in some respects to the rest of the teams in the conference, or at least to most of the teams. You know, I, I think I think he can do that. I think he's actually really good at at getting talent. You know, it's just what happens once they get here, like get to his you know school wherever he is. Yeah, I can't, I can't keep up with him. He moves he moves around like Indiana Jones on the map and Raiders of the Dark. Very cool, great movie. But then my counterpoint to that, and and that's a a really good uh, statement that he is a good recruiter because if you look at everybody he's brought in uh, when he was in Miami and even some of the talented players at Missouri, which infuriated Missouri fans because the team had enough talent to be competitive but were not, what is the end game there? Like, are you trying to get a Steph Curry under the radar, who wants to go to a school, and then you get him there, and then he's a first-round draft pick, so that you can re-elevate yourself to another major program? Are you trying to stay at this program that's a little bit under the radar, like a Tommy Amaker after he failed at Michigan, and then build up Harvard, which is in a big conference that has an automatic bid, but I mean, and his wife works at the Harvard Med School or a Harvard Med School associated uh, hospital, so you're going to stay there forever? What is in the future for Frank Hayes, because if he can recruit like we all know that he can and get talent to win games there, something tells me in the future he's not going to be comfortable winning 23 games and going to the uh, NCAAs or deep into the NITs every single year. But you yeah, guys on the interesting point, and it's something I discussed with folks on the message board not too long ago. What, what's, what's the appeal in Frank Hayes to Missouri? Uh, short of his ability to recruit, I mean, what? You mean Tulsa, Tulsa, or Missouri? I'm, I'm I, sorry, I can't, I can't Tulsa. The Tulsa, yeah. I'm why? Just, why would Tulsa go after Frank Cape at this point? I think. What, what do you guys I, think? I think. I, I think honestly, I think he gets the caliber of players that are pretty exciting. He'll put in a three-point bombing style with like a lazy defense. Often, it'll be kind of fun to watch. If he gets a few three, good three-point shooters, they can win a bunch of games. I, I, I think. I think the idea is that you can get some talent in there. I don't know. I, I, I guess that's the only thing I can think of. I don't. He's not a particularly good X's and O's guy. He's proven to be very, you know, some personality characteristics that have come out when he left Miami and also when he left Missouri that are really unflattering in someone you want to represent your university. So I, 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 I am kind of confused. I am kind of confused by it. Uh, I, I guess they're hoping that he can recruit a Durant. I guess they're hoping he can recruit somebody that's gonna like like Cam mentioned, you know, elevate the program maybe and, and make them some money. I, I I think that's really the only positive I can see. I, I you know, if the guy had handled his his leaving Miami well and leaving Missouri well, 
and and you know there hasn't there wasn't this much crap following him around. I, I could see like maybe giving him a shot because he's like seems like a generally nice, genuinely nice guy. But you're right, Jay. I, I it's kind of it's kind of boggling my mind. What's the appeal? I, I guess I guess his name still carries some cachet because he was coach of the year uh, three years ago, and I think all three of us would agree that uh, the biggest yeah, part of him winning that award was that. Is Larry yeah, Coker he inherited a very hungry team. He, he inherited a hungry team that was loaded with seniors and, and you know, loaded with shooters, and he, he just kind of fell in the right place at the right time with that. Yeah, didn't they Didn't they fall apart in the tournament early that year, too? They lost in the first round to Norfolk yeah. State. Um, well, like, and I, and no, no disrespect to Norfolk State, because they really played their minds out, and I think they gave – some other teams trouble, or they might have lost in the second round, but played yeah. well. Um, I, I can't remember how far that Cinderella story went. I believe they lost in the second round. But, I mean, to have the season they had and then lose in the first round was was very disappointing. I'm sure to Missouri fans. Um, and then it's been kind of downhill since, to where they didn't even make the tournament this year. Uh, they barely so made it last. Everybody on the message board predicted exactly what would happen to Frank Hayes, and it exactly came. Everybody, me, you, everybody predicted it. Yeah, um, kind of so, like. Just real quick, uh, going in, that was 2012. They beat Missouri by two in the first round and lost to Florida by 34 in the second round. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, thanks for fact-checking. <laughs> thanks for fact-checking me, because certainly uh, that takes some of uh the luster off of Norfolk State, and that, that makes it even more inexcusable. <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah, it, 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 it's mind-boggling. The saga of Frankie, I, I just have to say that I'm just, I, I really feel like Miami hit a home run. Uh, we can criticize um, all we want, uh, situations with the football team and Coach D'Onofrio and things like that, but I think we far too often overlook some of the great things that have been done at Miami, and, and the hiring of Jim Laranaga was an absolute home run, and we wish Frank Keith well. We hope he doesn't end up back in Coral Gables in, in any uh, time in the near future. Yeah, and I, I forgot to, to answer that question. The only thing when I ask, or ask that question that I could really see as being demonstrably better than upgrading Laranaga from Haith was people saying um, Patino and Calipari replacing whoever they replaced, Billy Gillespie and somebody else at Louisville and Kentucky. Uh, and there was, like, one other coach that was thrown in there that were really, really big upgrades. But, I mean, yeah, we've just – we've upgraded greatly. Um, and then just looking at the rest of the ACC, I mean, you have a Danny Manning at Wake Forest. You have Buzz Peterson at Virginia Tech who just brought two of his commits who got released or releases from uh, Marquette where he used to coach this week. They visited this weekend and, of course, committed to their uh, same coach. Uh, so you look across the ACC in the last few years, uh, even going back to Roy Williams replacing Matt Doherty for North Carolina, what was that, eight, ten years ago. Um, all these moves have been in a positive direction. So it's not just Miami, even though I think ours was a huge move. All across the ACC, you have some really good basketball coaches in this league now. Yeah, you, you yeah, make, no, you make some great points, and you, you brought up some great examples, but I'll tell you the one difference. Uh, it's not hard to get a Hall of Fame elite coach to Kentucky, Louisville. The Virginia Tech, that's a great hire. I, I, I can't believe they got buzz. I mean, that's a really, really good hire. Um, you know, and that's a home run for them, and that should, if, you know, if that leads to what I think it will, 
um, it's going to be a home run higher. But but Miami getting Laranaga is especially um, significant to me because, as I was saying, it's not like Kentucky where, hey, okay, you had Gillespie there and you you know you upgraded to Calipari. That's great. That's a huge upgrade. But who wouldn't want the Kentucky job? Um, right. Yeah. Miami job. Until recently, you're dealing with you know attendance problems, uh, limited history, a program that was dormant for 25 years. Um, so, hey, Virginia Tech though is a good a good comparison though to Miami, right? They're they're pretty similar in a way. I think for basketball, yeah, I, I think I think it is it's a fair point. I mean that that basketball program has kind of been state bitten too. They had um, some good years where they kept getting screwed over by the committee. Uh, quite frankly, where they just couldn't get in. Um, uh, but but getting buzzed, uh, you know, we all know. As Miami fans, what Marquette did to Miami a couple of years ago, and what he did at Marquette um, was one of the better under the radar, if you could call it that, coaching jobs in, in recent history. So uh, that, that, that's a great hire. Uh, Danny Manning could be an up and coming coach. That's another great example. Um, we'll have to see. Uh, you know, and yeah, I know the conference is is loaded with great coaches, right? Could you think of another conference that has this many, like you know, top level coaches as the ACC? I mean, it's it's. Uh, Especially not with Louisville coming in. Now you get Patino. Yeah. You got Patino, Krzyzewski, and Beheim at the front of the class, and like a guy like Laranaga. Laranaga, Roy Williams. Roy Williams, yeah, Roy Williams. You know, Coach K and Duke also. I mean, yeah, just yeah. I mean, just yeah, great coaches. It's just yeah. I mean, it's it's literally probably if you think about it, the 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 highest concentration of the best coaches in basketball in in the world in the ACC, right? It kind of reminds me of the old Big East, where you had guys like Raleigh Massimino, P.J. Carlissimo, Jim Beheim, you know, who was still at Calhoun. Syracuse back then, John John Thompson, Calhoun. Uh, you're kind of building up that same type of uh, uh, collection of coaches. So it, it should be exciting. I, I don't think the ACC performed up to snub this year. I thought they were going to be the best conference in America, and they didn't. I mean, Virginia had a great year. We haven't even mentioned Virginia and, and – um, um, their Tony. coach, uh, Tony Bennett, like his name too. Yeah, his name's on my tongue. His dad was it's a great Tony, coach Tony too. Bennett, that's Big Bennett's son. That's right, Tony. But how can I forget Tony Bennett? Tony, Tony Bennett's Bennett. a great yeah. coach in his own right. Um, yeah. So you're you're, you're uh, looking Blair at Hamilton. Hamilton. Oh, we didn't even mention Hamilton. Hamilton's an excellent yeah, we coach. Did, Hamilton's way underrated in my opinion, and you know he's he's at a school that's similar to Miami, and that football comes first, and he's already done some great things at Florida State. Um, yeah, I mean Hamilton, you, you know Josh, you know that you and I both have a special appreciation for Hamilton because he was there when we were at UM and and built the program up, and we even got a chance to talk to him two years ago after. Yeah, we got and, Miami. and we we saw it fully from when it was in the toilet to when. When we left, it was, they were making tournaments. I mean, you know, that three guy's in a row. coach. In, in the late 90s, early 2000s, they made three straight NCAA tournaments, the University of Miami, and they're still in the Big East. People forget that. And Leonard Hamilton was the big key to that success. And uh, he's just a great all-around guy, too. I mean, yeah, he, he, turned, he turned, he turned uh, Vernon Jennings from, uh, like, a undersized small forward into the best point guard in the ACC for a, for a stretch. Well, Incredible. Big East did. They're still in the Big, Big East. East. Big East, right, right. My bad. Yeah. So, yeah, Vernon Jennings led the Big East in assists his junior and senior year, so he really turned into a heck of a player. 
people people don't think too much about him. He could have been an NBA player if he had a little bit better shot, I think. Um, but yeah, Coach Hamilton is another guy. I mean, the ACC is pretty loaded. Um, so, okay. I mean, that was a that was a fun segment. I want to move on. You guys both did a great job uh, covering all the coaches and and covering our our Frank Cates discussion. I know we can talk about him all day, but uh, let's push forward. Uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about, and I, I considered opening up the uh, switch ports for this one, but I think uh, my computer would have exploded had I done that. Uh, I, I want to ask you guys, and we'll we'll delve deeper into this, but I just wanted to, ask, to start to ask you guys, uh, because this past week, Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, appeared on Mike and Mike, and I know Cam was very um, vociferous on Twitter about <laughs> how that interview was handled. So... A light bulb went on my head, and I'm like, let's do a segment where we say what we would ask Mark Emmert if we got a chance to. And maybe if we're lucky, somehow this will get back to him, and maybe uh, he'll answer our questions, but I doubt that very highly. I want to start with you, Cam. Cam, if you had, you know, a chance to host Mark Emmert the way Mike and Mike did, I I know you're not going to throw a softball. What would you ask him? Right. Well, first of all, it was Sedano and Golick because Greenberg was off. Um, and, you know, it it was a little uneasy because I thought that Sedano kind of set up Golick to come through with the hammer, and Golick kind of let that batting practice fastball fly by, and so their partnership wasn't uh, well-oiled as a machine because obviously they don't work together on a daily basis. My true question, and one of them I asked on Twitter, and one of these I'm going to steal from Bomani Jones, also of ESPN, who is a big proponent of uh, – the students and the, the labor force, as it were, were, in this situation. My two questions are these. One, Mark Emmert brought up the fact that institutions can, if they so choose, offer scholarships that are four-year agreements, not annually renewed uh, scholarships as they, you know, as we all know them. So, and he said, oh, there's a bunch of schools who do that. My first question is, name me the schools who give four-year scholarships. Show me right now. Because the one-year annually renewed scholarship is the biggest thing that every single institution holds over their student-athletes. And to say that there are a bunch, lots of schools that are giving away that leverage power without any kind of inducement to do so, I don't believe that. I'm calling BS. I need, I need to say the truth. That's number one. Number two, the question that Bomani Jones asked, and I saw this also reiterated by others, is, you know, what is your response to the statement that if the NCAA acted right in a, a true right and proper way, then the students would not need to go down this road of unionization like they're starting to do at Northwestern? And I, I just need answers to those two things. Which schools are giving four-year scholarships? Because, honestly, I think you're a liar. I don't believe that there are lots of schools that are doing that because why would you give up your negotiating power? Why would you give up that thing that you could hold over students? And also, why are you acting like this? Because, you know, if you acted in a right and proper way, the students would not have to find this additional redress, recourse outside of this system that you've set up to, to unduly penalize them. I want to know those answers to those two questions. And, and those are outstanding questions, I, particularly the first one. I, that should be an easy slam dunk, you know, a, a nice feel-good story. The NCAA should just hop right in and be like, hey, uh, if you get a scholarship, it's it's guaranteed for four years. I, you know, the the one year thing, 
really uh, uh, reeks of a conflict of interest or reeks of not doing the right thing for, for kids that are risking their body for, uh, granted they get scholarships, but are risking their body to make institutions, you know, money hand over fist, and you can't even guarantee. I've never been a fan of how the NFL runs things with non-guaranteed contracts for guys that get injured so often. Um it, it, it really is an abuse of power. So I, I, I love your questions, Cam. And, and, Josh, I want to ask you the same thing. What would you ask uh, Mr. Emmert if you had a chance to, to talk to him? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I like Cam's questions, too. I, just for one second, I, I mean, I know that they have that power over them, but I'd like to know how many times it happens where they actually take away the scholarships. And the reason why I ask is if you had a, a school with a history of doing that, it would be very unlikely that people would still continue to go there. I'm, I'm not uh, the biggest free marketeer or anything, but I think in that case, it's kind of like like it's it's something to hold over their heads. But do they, how often do they actually flex that muscle where they just bounce somebody without good reason? I, I just think it's a bad decision on on part of the school if you do, if you get a rep for doing that. But if I had to ask uh, Emmer a question, mine would be much more vague and less focused than Cam's. I would ask if when he looks in the mirror in the morning, when he goes to shave or do whatever, does he laugh or does he not laugh? That's what I would ask him. Because Can you expand on that, what you mean? Well, I, I, I think he's running an organization that is basically taking advantage of a, of a population to uh, incredible, you know, not just the, the like Ham brought up with the scholarship stuff, but, uh, you know, medical care. Uh, these guys are throwing themselves and having car accidents every Saturday and in practice. Uh, I, I just think, you know, they they have to practice so much that they, they really can't work, so they don't have any money. And a lot of them come from backgrounds where they're, you know, not privileged, uh, low socioeconomic status. So when people come, like, waving money around, it becomes a lot more appetizing because, you know, when people are in need, they, they reach out usually for something when it's given to them. And I think they put these kids into a position where it's hard to make the right decisions. So I, I would say that the idea that he doesn't just come out and say, we're going we're gonna to give these kids a stipend per week uh, while they're in football, you know, training or practice or during the season, just that he doesn't do that makes me wonder if he doesn't laugh at himself in the mirror. And, and that's that's what I'll say. I I just think it's it's preposterous. Yeah, and it's your point. Uh, does he laugh? Does he not laugh? I, you know, let's let's let, let's not so much defend him, but let's be honest about it. Is Mark Emmert really anything more than you know a, a puppet. puppet for yeah for for you know these these yeah, but he's a puppet that's. He's the puppet that's that's paid a lot of money to to make these decisions and and be the public face of this organization. So if yeah. there's anybody to hold accountable, it has to be him. And if he can't take the heat or he can't make right decisions, well, you know, there's going to be problems with that. And I just I just think that the whole college system is built on exploitation, and I love it. You know, I love the sports. I love the pageantry. I, I love everything about college sports except. The fact that I, I feel like these guys, the players, most of them will never make a dime playing the sport that they actually play, but might have all kinds of problems the rest of their life, physically, mentally, from banging their heads into other people for you know for a football game. Uh, 
I think it doesn't take those guys into consideration at all, especially. You know, the the ones that are going to dra- be drafted and make, like, a lot of money, you know, the NFL is kind of edging towards doing something for them in terms of taking care of them, in terms of uh, medical care and concussions and all this stuff. But what happens to these guys that play for four years and then they're done? So I, I just think that there, there should be some kind of safety in there for all these players, especially since the revenue is so high. If they were just squeaking by, you could say, well, you know, it's just a, a fact of reality. But you have people making billions of dollars off this, and it's, it's, it's bizarre. And, and, and I'm going to piggyback. I'm going to piggyback off of you for. I, I have two questions too. I'm going to piggyback off of one of your points for my first question. My first question would be much like people are asking, you know, the National Football League now. Um, you know, why or, or the fo- National Football League has one, but why they don't you guys have? Some yeah, why, why don't you guys have some type of system? Well, I, I, they should. The NFL should, but why doesn't? Why don't the NCAA presidents get together and put together some type of pension plan or something that takes care of the guys that have injuries and, and long-term problems as a result of playing college football? Um, because, because, I do you think know, gonna, because you know why. Because it's going to cut into their revenue stream. It's going to yeah. cut into their overhead, and they're not going to do that. Like, that's exactly. really money. Like, I, I, I hear you, but nobody's going to give away free money. You know well, what this is, though? I mean, you know what this really is, though? It's it's It's... It's cancer capitalism. It's what happens when you when you like keep exploiting and eventually your product falls apart. Like eventually there's gonna be some other solution to it, right? I mean maybe it'll take ten, twenty, thirty years, whatever. But eventually if you continue to run something really poorly, people are gonna find like another avenue. And and that's what that's what will probably happen. And you know, maybe, maybe not. Well, time will tell. Well I guess I'm I guess I'm an idealist. I, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm perfect, and I'm not saying that if I was handed, you know, a cash cow, I wouldn't try and exploit um, to an extent to, to make myself money, but I think I would uh, put some of the money aside um, for those that those that meet the most unfortunate of circumstances. I mean, God forbid a kid gets paralyzed. Uh, well, well, think about it, that. Jay. Think about it, Jay, right? So we have the, we have the playoff system coming to college football next year. Why? Because it took a long time of people bitching every year that the other system, while it was more profitable, I guess, or they thought it was more profitable, I, I still don't think that's going to hold up in reality. I think the playoff is going to be way more profitable. They, they seem to think that they were making they, they more money in these shitty, these shitty bowl games that nobody watched. But then they kind of realized maybe now that they, 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 already have done, they already done projections, and they know. They, they don't think. They know that this is going to be our – this NCAA football Final Four is going to be a revenue explosion. They have, they have little right. to no doubt. But you wonder why they didn't do this a long time ago. They 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 went to the stupid BCS and then, I mean, you know, they must have thought, literally, they must have thought we're going to lose money with all these shitty bowl games and nobody watches. Like the car. I, I don't ball, think that's it. Ball. And it's going to be the same with those it. bowls. People, the people that still watch those crappy bowls are still going to watch them. Doesn't make any difference. Yeah, did the Carquest Bowl have any impact on the national championship? No, it just never made any sense. But, but the point I was going to make is, I think the reason why they didn't go to the system sooner is, is less along the lines of uh, not wanting to make more money or not thinking they make more money than who was already making the money and, and threatening those people. The, the specific bowls 
that were already part of the in crowd, let's just say, in, in the NCAA system, were afraid of of shifting some of the money that they were already guaranteed to another spot, um, which is silly because they're going to still use the same bowls. But I, I think they worried about you know going to a playoff, possibly having home field advantages, things along those lines, um, uh, taking away some revenue from people that were already guaranteed revenue. That, that's my that's always been my take on why they didn't do it sooner. But uh, just real quickly, uh, the second question. Yeah, the second question I would ask Mark Emmerich if, if I got a chance, and this one is dedicated to all our Miami fans out there. What, what I would say to Mark Emmerich is why? Why do we choose to focus on a few programs? And, and I'm not saying Miami didn't have some sort of uh, culpability in, in, in the Shapiro scandal. They absolutely did, and we absolutely probably deserve to be punished more than we did, and we were lucky the NCAA screwed it up. But why are we pretending that a couple of cases like Miami and USC with the Reggie Bush scandal, and, you know, I can go down the list of lines, you know, of schools that have been punished. Why are we pretending that they're the only ones? Why are we pretending that this isn't going on everywhere? And why are we hiding behind this veil of, of you know, student athletes that, you know, shady things aren't happening behind the scenes? I mean, why are we pretending? Uh, at some point, isn't the mature thing to do just to, to take off our little – uh, blinders and say, we know this is going on everywhere. Uh, you know, punishing a few uh, schools that, that happen to do it stupid and get caught is it, silly to me. I mean, why not just figure out a system to where you don't have to have all this shadiness behind the scenes? And those would be my two questions, and, and I'll let you guys give me your reactions and, and follow up with, with anything else you'd want to ask. I think I think that those questions are good. Um, touching on what you and Josh were talking about earlier, um, I would circle back with, um, can there be some specificity uh, and maybe responsibility of the schools insofar as insurance? Because all student-athletes are required to have insurance. However, it does not dictate who has to be the payer, uh, who, who is responsible for the financial component of that insurance policy. So, I don't know this for a fact. I have not spoken to him nor his family about this. But somebody like a Malcolm Lewis who had the dislocated ankle when his foot was turned around the other way uh, his freshman year two years ago, we all saw that. I mean, it probably stands to reason that his family has his insurance policy because if the University of Miami or any other university is not responsible for carrying that premium, then, you know, that would have to be the solution. If the school's not going to pay for it, the parents going to pay for it. So, uh, I want to see some specificity and responsibility. If, if these schools are the ones who are putting these players out there who are benefiting greatly financially from them being on the field, then I believe that they should be able to be the ones who bear the financial responsibility to ensure these players against bodily harm and injury if that would happen in the playing of this sport. Yeah, it has to fall somewhere. I... You're right. I mean, I, I, I see I see the angle you're coming at. You know, the individual schools uh, should take their uh, share of the burden, but it, but it has to fall somewhere. I, I just can't see, you know, how you can have such a profitable industry, such a profitable you know game, and and there's 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 risk involved, and I, I don't see how you can't protect the very people that, you know, are, are, are taking the risk to make so much money for so many people and, and to bring so much enjoyment to so many fans and, and so on and so forth. Um, 
I, and again, I, I sometimes when we get in discussions like this, I'm a bit of an idealist, and I like to think that people will do the right thing, but but they're clearly not. So, um, I guess I have to sometimes uh, adjust my uh, expectations of people and positions of authority. But you know, college sports are supposed to be fun, and, and I, I think it would take very little effort to correct some of the problems that the NCAA has. And the fact that they choose not to is a great move on my part, um, on my opinion. But, uh, Josh, yeah. anything to add? No, I, I, I agree with what you said. I think that the the idea that they don't do anything, that they don't get ahead of the problem. You know, like, the NFL didn't want to get ahead of the problem, and it cost them. These guys aren't going to get ahead of their problem. They, these, For whatever reason, they like to wait until the last minute until things become, like, untenable before they act, and they end up losing more than if they just made some concession early and showed showed some some concern. You know, when, when you're forced, that the, your, your back's against the wall, and then you have to give in, it doesn't really show that you even care. It just shows that you you lost, so you had to make a concession. I think that, you know, all they have to do is be proactive, and they can come out of this looking a lot better than they actually do. And that's, that's all I'll say on that. Yeah, that that's about that's about all I have. I mean, I I I could get fired up with this discussion, and like I said, I thought about opening up the message boards for this, but I, I you know, I know our fan base has a lot that they would like to say, and most of it's centered around what Miami's been going through for the past couple of years. But, um, you know, I the the, the Mike and Mike thing was ridiculous. I, I agree with Cam on that. I, I thought they could have really asked him. Uh, some real poignant questions, and and they chose not to. All right, guys, anything to add before we move on? Not that we're good. No, I'm good. Yeah, so, I mean, these were the main topics that I'd outlined for us to cover. Um, We can talk a little bit about the NBA playoffs. I mean, I know some upsets are already happening. Wait, 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 wait. Um... We would be remiss to do a podcast about University of Miami athletics and not touch on the baseball team, which is playing right now and on a 14-game winning streak. Yeah, that's that's true. You're you're absolutely right, Cam. And I, I I'll be honest with you, I've been kind of busy the past couple of days, and I've just been following uh, very briefly. And uh, the good news is that I we just brought in an intern who's going to be covering Miami baseball, and he's going to get out to some of the games um, for us, Brian Goins. Um, uh, he, he did an excellent article on on Miami players that could be drafted this upcoming year, and some of the the guys that we have uh, that are supposed to come in next year that might get drafted and might not even make it to campus. So I, I'm trying to expand our baseball coverage, and now is the best time to do it because the team is on an incredible roll. But but Cam, what have you seen of late? Because I haven't caught their last couple of games. Um. Again, it sounds like a broken record because they haven't lost in a month almost, but they're still, you know, doing pretty well. Um, obviously, pitching has been one of the big things um, over the past 14 games that we've won, and I did a little bit of stat research earlier. They're allowing 2.71 of uh, runs a game. I don't know if those are all earned or not because I just kind of went by the box scores. I am scoring almost 6, 5.86 runs per game. So, we're hitting the ball, we're scoring runs, and we're not giving them up. So, obviously, that's a positive thing. Uh, from all the recaps I've been reading um, from 
all over the Internet. We have not been committing that many errors again, which was one of the main uh, gripes that I had early in the season. So fielding has been positive. And we've had six, uh, six or more runs in half of our wins uh, in this win streak. So uh, obviously, you know, the bats have come alive, and that's been great. Zach Collins still leading the team. I didn't go back and look up all his stats, but as of last week, he was hitting 400 over his last uh, 11 games. I think he's still somewhere up there in the high 380s or 400, uh, even past these last couple games. Uh, and then Garcia and Hammond out of the bullpen, along with all the starters, they've just been dealing. Um, and even when guys get on base, I don't know if you follow at Kane's Baseball on Twitter, you see this uh, three-word phrase all the time, out of it with an exclamation point. So even when runners get on, even bases loaded, you know, runners on the corners with one out or nobody out, the the pitching really bears down and makes some clutch pitches to get out of all these innings. Uh, and you put all that together, and now all of a sudden you have the longest win streak of any collegiate baseball team since 2008. And, and the good news, uh, uh, Cam, for those of us who haven't gotten to see him play much, tomorrow uh, they – they play Notre Dame. They wrap up a three-game series, and uh, they they are on ESPNU. Um, so folks who have ESPNU can actually watch them uh, play, and and hopefully they'll still have that winning streak alive. Um, yeah, it's been pretty remarkable. I, I, I'm kind of doing the same thing you are. I don't get to watch them play much live, um, but looking at the recaps, uh, they had a walk-off win last night. Um, they've had some blowouts. They've had their share of close games. They've had some well-pitched games. I mean, it's it's a broken record to what we've been talking about with the team. They're finding all different ways to win. And I've always said that a baseball team that can win more than one way is the most danger, dangerous baseball team there is. Uh, they can beat you pitching. They can beat you at hitting. Um, you know, that, that's going to be a tough team to beat down the stretch. Uh, Very true. Um, the only thing that I'll add is, you know, just prayers and well wishes to David Thompson that came out this week that he's not going to be returning uh, to the Hurricanes baseball team this year as he recovers from that uh, surgery from the blood vessel up around his uh, armpit rib cage area. Uh, so he's not going to be available to play anymore this season. So just from everybody here at the State of the Year to David Thompson, uh, you know, just a safe recovery. And, you know, we look forward to you doing great daily baseball things uh, on the Diamond Force next year. Uh, absolutely. I, I second that, and uh, we wish him a speedy recovery. Uh, Josh, now you had brought up baseball in general. Um, I, I want to ask you, because I know that you follow Major League Baseball pretty closely, uh, what, what are you seeing so far in the young season that you've been impressed with, unimpressed with? Who are some performers that have exceeded expectation, and, and what are you seeing so far? Uh, I'm, I'm well. I, I've I paid a lot of attention to my Yankees this year, and I'm, I've been really impressed with uh, Tanaka so far in the season. He looks like a polished, a polished ace. The guy looks like. Uh, I mean, you know, you can't call somebody making all that money a bargain, but you know, when you when you when you hit right on a guy that's really good, it's 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 better than when you hit when you hit wrong and you get guys stuck like you know A Rod for a million years and and other stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's been it's been entertaining so far. The Marlins have been pretty good here and there. Uh, I've kind of followed them a little more since I've been down here because of uh, Jose Fernandez, and he's like a beast. I don't know. I don't know what you've seen so far. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I follow the Yankees more than the other team. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll catch a game and you know at least watch it as background noise if, if another team's playing on on ESPN. Uh, I've been surprised that the Red Sox slow start. They don't have that same magic just yet. 
Um, sticking with the AL East teams, the Orioles have been, you know, pretty solid. Um, the Blue Jays have been, the A's have been actually ridiculous this year so far. Yeah, the A's just continue to pull like pitching prospects out of left field, and and it seems like whoever they put in their rotation is really good. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, another team that was surprisingly good, they've hit a little bump of late, the Milwaukee Brewers. They had like a sub-2 ERA through their first like 10, 12 games. Um, so they've had some incredible pitching, and, you know, being Ryan Braun back uh, off suspension has certainly bolstered their offense. Um, the Dodgers and Giants have had some interesting games that I've caught bits and pieces of. I, I love watching Yasiel Puig play. Whatever problems he has off the field, I think he's, you know, one of the top three or four most exciting players in baseball. Um, so I, I I try and keep tabs on as many teams as possible, but I definitely have an East Coast bias when it comes to baseball. Uh, Cam, how much do you follow the NLB? Um, huge baseball fan. It was my father's favorite sport. God rest his soul. So every you know young man wants to be like his father. So it's my favorite sport. That's the purest game on the planet. Um, following my Detroit Tigers. Um, love what's going on um, from the starting staff and from most of the lineup especially Miguel Cabrera. Again, thank you, Marlins fans, for Miguel Cabrera. I have to rub that in every single channel I because I'm that kind of a guy. Uh, so, you know, yeah. they're doing well. I was going to say the Dodgers are playing really well. And then the Atlanta Braves, kind of my tangential AL, or sorry, NL team, because, you know, when we were growing up, you only had uh, access to your league from your city. So being in Detroit, I really only saw the uh, American League and then, Turner, TBS, they put the Braves on every single day. And, you know, over the summer, I was a baseball fan. I was flipping around there. hey, you know what? I know that the Braves are there. So kind of a little tangential rooting team. Uh, and they've been doing really well. Freddie Freeman, Antelson Simmons, uh, and then pretty much the whole pitching staff has really been dealing. Uh, so, you know, it's been really good to see a lot of good stories uh, throughout this year. Oh, and the resurgence of Albert Pujols. Uh, welcome back to Major League Baseball after disappearing for a couple of years. Uh, so all those things, I think, have been positive. Uh, Cam, I want to respond to uh, your last uh, couple of moments, two statements. Actually, one statement and one question. First, I want to say you're absolutely right about looking up to your dad and doing things your dad likes to do. And my dad was actually an amateur boxer. So those times when I'm talking to you guys and I seem a little punchy, there's your explanation. <laughs> Got it. Second Cam, I... I you know, uh, years back, I was in Mexico, and I met a, a couple of Tiger fans, and they were extremely impressed because I could name them the entire 1984 uh, Detroit Tigers starting lineup. I, I want to see how much of that you Curtis, can do. How much in Curtis, 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 of, of RBI Whoa. Baseball. Dude, you have, you have RBI to have played RBI Baseball. RBI Baseball, baseball I mean, definitely helped. That, that's really tough because... In 1984, I had just moved back to Detroit with my parents, and I had just turned three that summer. So it's <laughs> yeah. kind of tough to do all that. You know, I know the uh, Willie Hernandez, the left-handed closer, he was really great uh, that year. We had uh, uh, Frank Tanana, who actually is from the uh, Southfield, which is a, a near-line suburb of Detroit. He was on the team, Trammer, uh, sorry, Trammell and Whitaker, the double play yeah, combination. Yeah. Uh, Oh, I'm seeing a couple of names, but I can't, I can't name him right now. Lance Garish. Yeah. Matt Noakes. Vince Gilder. Think Vince Scully. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
Those all yeah, he's really worked out. He was a young man in 1984, so we'll stop for him. Uh, yeah, I, we're I, we're I, all I'm sorry, go ahead, guys. Was, was I, I Gibson there, too? Yeah, Gibson was there. Young Curtis oh, yeah, and previous yeah, Gibson was Yep. And you had uh, Herndon. Um, goodness, uh, I think Matt Noakes was a backup catcher then. The Yankee fans all know about Matt Noakes. Um, right, right. Uh, you had, uh, they had a really good designated hitter. His name's on the tip of my tongue. He was a former catcher that was a designated hitter. Uh, like Darryl Thomas or Darryl Thomas or something? Is that him? Well, Darryl Evans, I think it was. Evans. I'm pretty sure Darryl yeah. Evans, who would go on to play for the Red Sox years later. But that 84 Tigers team, Evans. I like that. Dwight Evans, Evans, different guy. Yeah, I think yeah, Darryl Evans that, was that right. Now, now I'm showing sure a bunch of you here because my <laughs> 84 Tigers knowledge is not as good as I thought it was. But, uh, yeah, RBI baseball definitely uh, had an influence on my uh, affinity for the 84 Tigers. But yeah, I, I always, you know, I always like to bring up that team. Um, okay, so moving on, yeah, this like, will be our last topic for the day. Uh, Indiana Pacers lost game one at home to the Atlanta, Atlanta Hawks as a one seed. Are you uh, surprised? That, team, that team's been a dumpster fire for about a month and a half now, so I'm really not. Uh, you know, I wasn't surprised at all. I, I hate the I, NBA. I, I, I mean, my only thing is I want to know what happened to that team because when that happened – Something, I don't, something happened, and I think, I mean, there's great speculation as to what happened in the Cleveland locker room when LeBron was there. I'm not going to say what it is, but if you guys search the Internet or with the sports <laughs> radio talk, you kind of have an idea of what the Somewhere. issue may have been. I'm not saying it's the same North, thing, North but something <laughs> happened to change that entire team chemistry and culture seemingly overnight. And it, I, we may never know what that is, but something happened. And I want to know what that is. It'll come out at some point. Somebody will write a book or, you know, whatever. It'll come out at some point. Chemistry is very important in basketball. We're all basketball fans. We all know that you can, you know, try and make a rotisserie basketball team, and if you don't have the right mix of players, I mean, look at the Knicks. My goodness. They've been, for years, they've been haven't not been able to get a good mix of players. They, they've not been able to get talent or the right mix of players. But, you know, right. I think something happened with the chemistry of that team. Uh, Hibbert's play is clearly down. And, and, and oh, Paul George is the best player on that team, but Hibbert gives them something unique that you don't find it often in the NBA anymore, and that's a seven-footer that can play with his back to the basket and can dominate games on the block and can play really good defense. His play, is, to me, I, I don't watch that much NBA. But what I've seen of the Pacers since they started this downward slide, his play has been the most obviously off to me. Uh, David West, you're looking at a power forward, um, you know, who's been underrated for years. I caught some of the Hawks game last night, and he looked out of sorts. Uh, he was trying to fight with the Hawks player. He, you know, uh, he didn't look like he, he was the same player as what he was last year at this time. So you look at that, and you got two guys that are, you know, kind of the backbone of your team, uh, along with Paul George. And their play dropping significantly, I think that's enough 
It's a fine line if you don't have LeBron James on your team between being a great team and and an average team. And and I think those two guys have dropped off a little bit, and I don't think the players like each other that much either. It it wouldn't appear. And you put those three things into the equation, and that's my explanation for the Pacers. But I'd be interested in, in finding out from somebody that follows the team or covers the team what they see going on. Right, and then, I mean, I'll just add, you know, in the middle of the season, well, towards the end of the season, the NBA said that they were going to really crack down on that um, quote-unquote verticality rule on defense, uh, which was basically Roy Hibbert's calling card. I can I can jump into people, but if I have my hands up, it's verticality because my arms are vertical and, uh, you know, there can be no foul. And literally, from the day that they announced they were looking at verticality until now, I think his averages are like six points a game, four rebounds a game, and shooting like 40%. So that completely altered his entire game by them looking at this one thing that he would do on defense to the point where, yeah, he's not playing, he's on the bench sulking, looking some kind of way, because Ian or, yeah, McHenry is taking his minutes. David West, who was actually balling for most of that game, taking his minutes. They're giving the minutes to anybody because he's playing like hot doo-doo, and it might be because of that rule change. It might not, but it, it, it seems odd to me and a weird um, uh, occurrence of coincidence that the day that they say that from then till now, his play has dropped off incredibly. Like, it, 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 it's just been ridiculous. The team is so mentally weak, it's not even funny. Really. It's, yeah, it's, it's awful. I mean, they fought the entire season to get the one seed, so they had home court advantage, and then they gave up home court advantage in the first game of the playoffs. The most mentally weak team I've seen in in a long time in any sport. They're really, uh, really like a a collapsitation of epic proportions, especially in basketball. True, but, I mean, in the guise of the playoffs where everything is magnified, I get that, but yet and still – they come out, they win tomorrow, they come out and they win on Wednesday, Tuesday, whenever they play game three, all of a sudden they're back up two to one. If they win that game in Atlanta and they go back and they get home court, things could change. So right now it looks bleak, it looks tired, it looks like there may be no recovery from that, but it gives just the first page of, you know, of chapter of this novel of the playoffs, and we'll see what else is in there. You know, well, the thing is, OPM, the very fact that we're talking about them finding a way to survive Atlanta when they were supposed to be the team that challenged Miami is is, is disturbing in and of itself. Um, I, I know Atlanta's uh, done some things this year to improve their their roster, and they've they've played hard under a new coach, and they've done some things. But I mean, Indiana was supposed to be, you know, Miami's rival. They they were supposed to be a team that possibly prevented Miami from getting the three peat along with whoever comes out of the West. And now they are now. It's a question whether they're going to get through the first round. Right, that that's to, to Josh's point. Get, that is a classification. They might get swept. I, I don't think they get swept. He said they might get swept. I don't think they're going to get swept. Oh no way! Oh, I don't know. I mean, if, if right. they had any sense of professionalism about them, if they had any sense of pride and dedication, which I believe that they do. I don't think that there's a chance that the Pacers get swept. They need to play a lot better um, in addition to wanting to win because, you know, I do believe that at times the will to win, the desire to be great thing can be overcooked. But I just think that there's too much talent on that team in addition for them to get swept by the Pacers. 
I'm sorry about the Hawks. You know what? The Hawks, the Hawks must smell blood in the water, too, at this point. I mean, if you're them, you just feel like you can out hustle them. You can out, you're together, and yeah. they're not. I, 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 I watched that game. I watched that game, and, and it seemed like, you know, for the better part of the second half, the Hawks had to just not, we're not just winning, they had double digit leads. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's ugly right now for Indiana. It, it really is. I think that they'll get a good enough performance and one of their games in their home arena to not get swept. I, you know, you got to figure game two, they're going to lay it all on the line. Um, you know, if they do, if they lose game two, they might get swept. You're right. Game two is the, is absolutely a must win for Indiana. If they lose game two, it's going to go downhill even quicker. Um, I agree with that. I think from like a, a X's and O's analytical standpoint, who is going to just guard Jeff Teague? Because he single-handedly killed them yesterday. He got to the rim at will when they wanted to rotate the second uh, inside defender over there. He didn't pocket passes to, you know, to uh, Paul Millsap and um, Carol Antich, who I think I've heard his name four times, but I don't think I'd ever seen him until yesterday in a game because I don't watch the Hawks. Because, I mean, who watches the Hawks? Um, but, I mean, he he had 28 points and eight boards and, like, seven assists. I mean, he single-handedly killed them. So, uh, you know, they passed the guards with, hey, you need to control this guy. And maybe he had the game of his life because he's from Indianapolis. He went to Pike High School. He won four state championships, was Mr. Basketball in that state. Maybe he just had the best game of his life in the first playoff game of his life at home in front of his friends and family, or he's really that much better than the Indiana guards, and they got a serious problem. And Teague, I, I love that you brought up Teague, because Teague's a former ACC player that, you know, we watched play against Miami. I, I'm, I'm throwing a blank. Did he go to Wake? No, he went to Georgia Tech, didn't he? I think Teague? No, he um, went to Wake. North Carolina. No, it was Wake? No, he went to, he went to, he went to Wake Forest. Yeah, he went. To, that's right. He went to Wake Forest, not Georgia Tech. But I, although I'm drawing a blank on the school he went to, I remember seeing him play against UM, and um, I, I didn't. I wasn't like uh, impressed uh, to the point watching him where I was like, "Wow, this guy is like a surefire NBA player." I thought he was an NBA DL guy, potentially, you know, a 12th man on somebody's roster. Um, he didn't impress me that much, but it's just funny how guys can make it if they can make it to the league and they can get a little confidence um, and get in the right situation that their game can blossom. Um, so it's pretty pretty interesting that he's doing this well, to me anyway. I, I, I didn't think he'd have this type of career, and he's um, clearly, you know, a fringe all-star player at this point, uh, Teague. So um, I had a great year for Atlanta. Another game that really caught my interest was uh, Golden State upsetting uh, the Clippers in, the, in in game one. Uh, the Clippers, you know, are an interesting team. You think any team with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, and Blake Griffin's a whole different player this year, um, um, should be a contender for the finals. Can they get by Golden State? Uh, uh, Cam, I'll start with you. What do you think? I definitely think that they can and will get by Golden State. Uh, most people... Uh, who follow the NBA or watch it think that that or thought going into the playoffs that this would be a six or seven game series uh, because Golden State is explosive and if they play just enough defense they can win um, and there was a time in the second or third quarter I forget which where the teams went back and forth and literally hit thirteen shots in a row and there were no fouls no out of bounds no anything they're just going up and down playing YMCA pickle basketball but to the highest level. Uh, and Steph Curry only had six shots or eight shots.
still won. Um, my thing was the referees. They took such a big role in that game. Blake Griffin fouls out in only 19 minutes of play. Andre Iguodala had four fouls with five minutes remaining in the second quarter. Of course, he goes on to foul out. Everybody seemed like was in foul trouble all game long. There was no real flow, except for that one episode in the third quarter, because everybody was talking about coming out of halftime, would there be any flow? So there was some flow in the third quarter for about five or six minutes, and then the referees hopped back in and said, well, there's flow, this looks like basketball, we're going to interject ourselves back into this game, um, or whatever. So that was kind of tough to see. I think that the Clippers do have enough pieces, they just need to execute at the end of game, and, you know, Chris Paul kind of gets a, a, a pass a lot of times on uh, his team losing, but he had six turnovers yesterday, and he had a turnover when they're down three with under 15 seconds to go or under 20 seconds to go. That's kind of tough to recover from, you know, to look at, yo, you're supposed to be the best point guard in the league. You have this turnover, and there was a reaching foul against Draymond Green that they didn't call on that play, yet and still you can't have a turnover from the best point guard in the league trying to get a shot to tie the game that late in the, in, in the in the opening game of the series. But overall, I got Clippers. I don't know if it's six or seven. They're winning, though. Uh, Josh, uh, Cam points out that there's possibly some questionable officiating in, in game one. Is that something that uh, is new to us uh, that have watched NBA playoffs for a long time? Questionable officiating in the NBA? Are you kidding? Never happens. Uh, I... I, I, I channeled my inner, inner Mark Cuban for that question. Uh, well, yeah, I, 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 I will hop in. Everybody was mad at, like, bloggers and Twitter people saying, oh, there was a reach and foul on that play. They said, no, it's not. You just hate, you know, the, the Warriors or whatever, blah, blah, The NBA, or, sorry, the uh, NBA came out today with a statement that said, yes, there was a foul that should have been called on that play. We messed up. So, you know, it's just for transparency sake, like we like to be here, uh, I say to you, there was a foul, just throwing it out there. I, that, that's that's a fair point. I, I just, uh, my biggest problem with the NBA, and maybe I, I, I listen to Mark Cuban too much, but my biggest problem with the NBA has always been um, the perception that favoritism occurs. I, there's any number of ways you can word this, but my biggest problem with the NBA has always been how it's officiated. And I know it's very, very difficult when you have world-class athletes that are as big and as tall uh, as these guys are uh, to get every call, especially, you know, with so many rules that are subjective, like the charge block and things like that, um, you know, to get them right. But, I, I, you know, I, I, that's always been my biggest problem with the NBA. Going back to that series between Sacramento and the Lakers in 2003, I've had a serious chip on my shoulder towards NBA officiating, so you guys will have to forgive me for that. Uh, you can that play some Twilight Zone. That was the, the worst. Back. Oh, oh terrible. I, you know, that, 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 that took some of the luster off the NBA to me. I, I still haven't Tim completely Donahue forgiven special. the NBA for that series. It was a Tim Donahue special, dude. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it was, was, but I mean... That's regardless of Tim Donaghy, because he wasn't the only official who messed up calls in that series. I mean, no, I know, I know. I mean, but that's you know, in that O two series, the uh, the series with the Spurs and the Suns, when Steve Nash, no, not Steve Nash, when Joe Johnson got his face broken, this orbital, you remember that? 
in 03 or 04, they miss all those calls, and then they suspend everybody for coming off the bench because there was a dirty play by a Spurs player, I think it was Tim Duncan maybe, who, and, and Joe Johnson had to miss time because his overgrown bone was fractured. And then, you know, you get all the starters off the bench. Amari Stoudemire, I believe, was on that team. He got suspended. Uh, and then you're just looking around like, yo, this is a, this is a dirty play. This is a bad boys, Bill Beer, Rick Mahorn play that should have got him thrown out. Didn't get anybody thrown out or anything. Kind of gets their face broke, but you're going to suspend us for coming off of the bench. And it happened right in front of the bench. Like, mm, yeah, there's been some times of some troubling officiating in the National Basketball Association. Yeah, and I, I from from what I've seen, it may have improved some, <laughs> but maybe not enough to everybody's taste. I mean, everybody's always going to feel like there's something's amiss when their team loses. So, I, I I try and take my own opinion with a grain of salt, if that makes any sense. Uh, but I, I I I just sometimes get really turned off to the NBA for that reason, and I, I hope these playoffs aren't tainted with that type of problem that we've had in the past and they're officiated as fairly as possible and nobody goes home uh, feeling like they got cheated because too often that's the case. You know, if you made me Very NBA commissioner tomorrow, I, the first thing I would do is retrain all the referees and I'd be like, look, you guys are human, you know, you're going to make mistakes. I'm somebody who, you know, roots for the Pistons. Again, I'm from Detroit. I ride for the home team. And I would love to be able to blame the officials. However, I know that my team's terrible season was predicated on the fact that basketball idiot Josh Smith is on my team, and he just wanted to take bad jumpers all year long because he likes how they feel when he shoots them, even though he shot, I don't know, 20% maybe from three. Um, so I wish I had that to fall back on. I am envious of all of you all who are listening to this, who are rooting for teams that are still playing, all of the Heat fans who are also Hurricanes fans uh, who are going for their third straight championship. I am envious of you because – my team employs basketball idiot Josh Smith. Oh, well, well, my team uh, was and kind of still is the New York Knicks uh, growing up in Jersey, and I, I can't blame the refs for any of their struggles. I mean, <laughs> I can't blame the refs for any of their struggles going back to the 1990s. I mean, they, they've they been the dumpster fire of a franchise. Uh, you know, me and Josh talked about this. The fact that they went out and drafted Tim Hardaway Jr., which is actually – a great, brilliant move, but yet re-signed J.R. Smith, who's the identical player except older and more expensive, boggled my mind when it happened. Why they need both of those players on their roster uh, is beyond me. Why they would go out and and get a seven-foot center that likes shooting three-pointers when they need defense. You know, why Clarence Weatherspoon? Why... I, 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 if, if I went through all the moves the Knicks have made... Howard Isley. <laughs> Chandon Isley. Thomas years, Cam. Your buddy Isaiah Thomas really screwed us. That's all I have to say about that. Well, Josh Smith, I trump you with everything because at least J.R. Smith, he will go off and take 22 threes in the game. And you know what? You, I, I win that game or eventually just have a, a YOLO jumper that will win him something. Josh Smith won us nothing. Nothing. I mean, Josh Smith. That's it. I dropped the mic, Josh Smith. I, I got one better yeah. for you, and Josh can back me up on this. Drafting Frederick Weiss over Ron Artest. That's it. What, what, what was that about Barco Milicic? 
at number two in the draft over Dwayne Wade and Carmelo. What was that about Darko? Exactly. I mean, yeah, you, you kind of just checkmated me there. I I, I know it on that yeah. match. That's true. That, that was I'm, the worst move, actually. <laughs> I mean, you, you talk about the worst draft picks ever. Everybody's going to say Sam Bowie at number two in front of Michael Jordan because nobody in the and if you look at people from Houston, they have no problem with having taken Akeem Olajuwon in front of Jordan. He's a all a, you know a Hall of Famer. They won two championships. You know, were in it for a couple more. Hey, nobody has a problem with that. Sam Bowie at number two. That was the gold standard for. Oh my God, WTF did we just do in front of <laughs> the greatest player arguably to ever play the game? And then my Pistons in the year of whatever it was, 2003, decided, hey, we're not going to take Carmelo Anthony. We're not going to take Dwayne Wayne. We're not going to take any of these guys who are still cream of the crop in the league. We're going to take some tall, lefty dude named Darko. What? Come on. Well, Toronto made a similar mistake years back with, uh, guys, guys, help me out here. What's the guy's name? He's on the mix now. Seven-foot lefty. Arnani. And the Knicks decided to go out and sign this guy. So. Hey. Go ahead. No, I'm no. done. No, I was going to say before we, uh, before we move, we should talk about what happened to Teddy Bridgewater. Yeah. Teddy Bridgewater. Okay, now we're getting back into UM subjects. Teddy Bridgewater, who spurned UM uh, when they fired Randy Shannon and went to Louisville and went on to do great things and destroyed us uh, this year uh, in the Champ Sports Bowl. Uh, yeah, from what I understand, he had a very poor uh, pro day, and his stock is now dropped so low that they're projecting him to go in the second round, where he was once projected to be the first overall pick. I, You know, Teddy Bridgewater... Reminds me so much of Geno Smith. It's not even funny. Yeah, it, he does. Um, you know, and again, fair warning. A little biased because I do some work at Miramar High School. Some would say every single day because that's where my real job is. Uh, and I announced Geno Smith uh, his game since his sophomore year uh, of high school all the way through. So I, I've seen him a lot. I think that Teddy Bridgewater is a little bit better prepared for the NFL, and if you go back and you look not at this year's bowl game against us, you look at last year's Sugar Bowl against Florida when he had that defense breathing down his neck and he stood in there and made some throws, I think that that performance uh, is kind of more in line with who he is. Uh, and then, yeah, you can go back and look at the bowl game from this year uh, if you're a Hurricanes fan and then you just want to, I don't know, throw up or hurt yourself or something because he absolutely eviscerated us. Um it's, you know, these things happen before every draft where all of a sudden there's narratives and there's factors to uh, picking a player that have never been part of the conversation before. All of a sudden, because Johnny Manziel is 5'10 and a half and Bridgewater is a legit 6'2", people are saying, oh, well, we have to think of something that's not height-based uh, to talk about this player. Oh, his hand size is small. His hand span from pinky to thumb when you spread it out is not as big as Johnny Manziel's. And his foot size is only a 11 and a half or a 12 when Johnny Manziel wears a size 14 shoe. So you're looking at the extremities and trying to say all of a sudden, oh, these are, are, are things that are really going to factor in to his professional success. There are some people. 
I mean, there's some people like Matt Miller who love him. There's some people like Dieter Kurtenbach, good personal friend of mine from the Sun Signal, who does not think that any quarterback is a first-round prospect. But there might be a little bit of a smokescreen going on because these teams don't want you to know who they're looking at to pick in the draft. Uh, yeah, you're, every year somebody drops down, and a lot of it is uh, ushering. It's a lot of uh, three-card Monty, whatever you want to call it. They they want guys' stock to fall so they can fall to them at a later pick. I, that's absolutely true. I, I just the thing that reminded me of Smith was how he was projected to be a number one overall pick, as Bridgewater was, projected at one point to be a Heisman you know, candidate, just as Geno was. And now all of a sudden it's projected to go in the second round, just as Gino did. Those things are eerie uh, uh, to me. Um, but, yeah, Bridgewater uh, definitely, I think, is more polished than Gino was at this stage of the game. And I think Gino actually had an underrated rookie year with the Jets. I think by the end of the year he was playing really well. Um, he ended up winning eight games. And West Virginia's defense his senior year was a dumpster fire. If you want to talk about Miami's defense having been bad, go back and look at two years ago West Virginia's defense. Louisville didn't have a defense that bad. So maybe, you know, kind of talking, going back to the recruiting thing that we were talking about at the very top of the podcast, revisionist history, looking back, and then all of a sudden making things different than they actually were, maybe that was part of the equation with Geno. I'm not sure. I don't know, but it potentially could have been. Hey, all right, guys. Uh, we're getting down to the close of the show. Our little uh, uh, director, producer, uh basically the site and telling us that we're running low on time. So I just wanted to, uh, you know, first tell our listeners uh, that are listening, we appreciate you guys listening. And we'll, we'll, we'll get back to more team-focused shows in the future. We wanted to try something a little different. I think this was fun. I think we had some excellent discussions. Um, but before we close out, I just wanted to give you guys both a chance for any final thoughts. Josh, anything you want to say before we, we cut the show off? No, I agree, man. This was a lot of fun, and, uh, you know, I hope we can do it again. It's it's, it's great to uh, talk to UM Sports, but sometimes, you know, when there's either, you know, uh, a negative uh, aura or just not that much going on, it's it's, it's fun to branch out into other stuff. And, and Cam, uh, great job uh, bringing us all the updates on the recruiting, as always. Uh, great discussion on the recruiting and great discussion on, on all the non-Cain-related stuff. Any Any closing thoughts for us? Um, well, first of all, again, it's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, we did start with some Kane stuff, and we, we branched out on the things that were topical, so I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. My last piece of uh, thought today will be I want to do uh, a mailbag column this week, so you can feel free to hit me on Twitter, at Underwood Sports, or at the State of the U. Uh, send me your questions, and I'll pick some of the best ones to respond to in the column. If you don't want to be on Twitter or are listening to this at your work computer and can't get on Twitter, you can send me an email, Cam, C-A-M, Underwood, just like it sounds, Cam Underwood at gmail.com. Uh, I already have a bunch of questions in both of my hat mentions, on both of my Twitter accounts and in my uh, email account. So, yeah, send those questions in. I want to try to start to do this once a week. So, yeah, save the you uh, question and answer the mailbag blog, I guess. Send me in your questions at Underwood Sports at the State of the U, or Cam Underwood, C-A-M Underwood, at gmail.com. Excellent. We look forward to reading that. That should be fun, Cam. And, um, guys, don't forget the Amigo show. He took a couple weeks off, but he'll be on every Wednesday. He's had some great guests like Alonzo Highsmith and Al Golden himself. So definitely look forward to Amigo show, and thanks to everybody who listened. Thanks, guys, for hopping on.
All right, later. Okay.